Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well. This week may not be to everyone's taste as it does deal with the rape and murder of a young girl. So that's a bit of a trigger warning. Now, my references tonight will be Adrian McGregor of The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald, The Courier Mail, Sunshine Coast Daily, Deadlier Than The Mail by Adrian Tame. That's a book. Okay, so... Get ready for this wild ride. So we go to Noosa, a beachside resort-type town about two hours' drive north of Brisbane. It's 1987, and Noosa is seen as a relatively safe place to grow up. Kids will ride their bikes to school and hang out after school. A great place to grow up. But no matter where these safe family-oriented communities are, and it really doesn't matter if it's in the 60s, the 70s, or whenever... There will always be some evil that can come and turn everything upside down. And in November of 1987, that evil came to Noosa. It was in the form of Mongrel Dog's 33-year-old Barry Watts and 43-year-old Valmay Beck. Both career criminals, they'd met in 1983 and got married a few years later. Watts was runty in appearance from years of booze and hard living, while Beck was frumpy and overweight from years of the same sort of lifestyle. They would often be seen in the shittiest of pubs, wherever they lived, and pubs that would probably just tolerate their drunken arguments and fighting. And if they did get thrown out, they would then get takeaways and drink in the park where they would continue fighting. They weren't from Noosa, they were from Western Australia and currently on the run, both of them skipping bail, Watts for armed robbery and Beck for break and enter and false pretenses. Now, around October 1987, on their journey towards Noosa, they stayed at Watts' adoptive father's place in Maroolbark, about an hour's drive east of Melbourne. Now here they purchased a white 1973 HQ Holden Kingswood station wagon, which was abundant in numbers around Australia, but it also stood out like dog's balls and would ultimately be part of their undoing. You see, unlike all the clone-like cars around today, you could tell a Holden Kingswood was a Holden Kingswood from miles away. Now, they didn't stay too long in Melbourne. They took the Kingy up north through New South Wales and into Queensland, renting a place in Lowood. Now, that's about an hour's drive west of Brisbane. Then on the 11th of November 1987 at Ipswich, about 45 minutes drive southwest of Brisbane, 24-year-old shop assistant Cheryl Mortimer had finished work at Target. By 5.30pm, she'd left the store and got in a car to drive out of the car park. Now, she saw a woman approach her, motioning her to stop. As she stopped, the woman asked for directions. Now, Cheryl stopped the car and next thing she knew, a man grabbed the keys from the ignition and held a knife to her. 
Now, Lucky, one of Cheryl's workmates, saw what was going on and walked up to her car. The man and woman ran off fleeing in a white Holden Kingswood station wagon. Now, there was blood on Cheryl's window, but it wasn't her blood. The would-be attacker had cut himself with the knife and a bloody handprint had been left behind. Now, Cheryl went to police and told them what happened. She told Constable Hall about the white Kingswood and she thought the Red Joe plates were maybe from New South Wales. She thought it was LLE 439. Now, she told them the woman was about 40-odd and obese and the guy was about 10 years younger, scrawny and drunk. Constable Hall was able to call the newspapers and get details of the attack published. Now, the cops found a car in New South Wales with those number plates, but it was a Toyota Corolla. And they checked out the owner, but he was miles away. He had an alibi and he hadn't been anywhere near Ipswich. Now, fingerprints were listed from the bloody hand marks, but they didn't match anything on file. Now, two more nurses from Ipswich Hospital came forward after seeing the attack details in the newspaper. Now, one of them had been approached in a similar manner the night before on the 10th of November, late at night. The attacker had beaten his hands on the nurse's window, trying to get her to open the door, but she was able to drive off and she was terrified. In the second instance, nurse Nicole Close was lured out of her car by a man holding a map asking for directions. Now, she noticed rope and hessian bags in his back seat and just by luck, another worker walked past and the guy was startled a bit and so Nicole took this opportunity. She jumped in her car and sped off. She just had bad feelings. Now, she told police she thought the Rego number was LLF429 and that the car, again, was a Holden Kingswood station wagon. Now, this number plate didn't yield any results either, but police were concerned about the three incidents. With no more crimes reported in the following weeks, police hoped either their attackers had moved on or they'd just got cold feet and stopped. Now, just a disclaimer on the name Nicole Close. Now, I I can't for the life of me find my reference to it, so I can't tell you where I saw it or if it's the exact name. Sorry, but I do remember that name. Then, then on Friday the 27th of November 1987, Elizabeth Young and Bill Wallace were enjoying a day at Castaways Beach. That's up near Noosa. They noticed a scruffy man in his 30s with bleached hair. But he didn't look like a surfy. He just looked like an old Darrow in dishevelled industrial work clothes. Trying to look the part, but totally missing it. Elizabeth thought he looked like a farmer look, looking for his cows. He, she, he stared at them like a weirdo and he seemed to be drunk. Now, Bill moved his car so he could see it better as it had been broken into before at the beach. Then he noticed his scruffy guy's car. It was a white HQ Holden Kingswood that had Victorian number plates and he took the details, details down on a scrap of paper. Now, this was LLE 429. Now, when that car went to leave... Uh, Bill and Elizabeth decided to follow it. Now, it headed north past Sunshine Beach and into Noosa Heads. They lost sight of the Kingswood near Pinaroo Park, Noosa Junction. Now, they just let it go for the time being as they really couldn't go to the cops for seeing a weirdo at the beach or else we'd be all down at the cops every day. 
Now, it's around this time that 12-year-old Sean Kingy rode her Malvern Star bike to Noosa Fair Shopping Centre after she finished school at Sunshine Beach School and she was going to see her mum. Sean had long, straight golden hair and olive skin. Now, she got the hair from her mum, Linda, and her olive skin from her Maori father, Barry. She was shy and good-mannered. Sean was 160 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 6, which gave her a great height advantage when she played netball against her friends. She loved dancing, ballet, and was a happy, loving, and active kid growing up in a beautiful community. She was going to meet her mum to pick out material for a dress to go to a birthday party on the weekend. At 4.45pm, they'd finished buying the material for the dress, and Linda Kingy stopped at the bakery at Noosa Fair to buy bread. Now, Sean told her mum she'd ride a bike home via the Pinaroo Park bike track. Linda would walk the short distance home going through the park rather than around the bike track with Sean. Now, Pinaroo Park was developed in the 70s, but was quite secluded and isolated, even though it's just behind Noosa Fair Shopping Centre and is bounded by quite busy roads. It consists of thick bush surrounding what you might call a lake or a pond, and it wouldn't take long for you to be out of sight. Now, when Linda got home, Sean wasn't there. Linda thought she must have met friends. She wasn't really worried that much at all. It was normal for kids that age to go and visit friends after school, just hang out in the street. But as dusk approached, this made Linda worry. She called out all of Sean's friends. No one knew where she was and no one had seen her. At 8pm, Sean and Sean's dad, Barry Kingy, arrived home from work. Now, Linda told him of her concerns and so they backtracked to Pinaroo Park and they found Sean's bike. They knew she would never leave it there like that as she loved a bike. Now, they put the bike in a car in their car and went straight to the cops. Detective Sergeant Bob Atkinson was on duty that night. Now, he knew Sean Kingy as a netball friend of his own daughter. He went to Pinaroo Park with the Kingies to investigate, but he knew, the parents knew, that she just wouldn't be a runaway. Now, this seemed more sinister. By 11.05pm, Detective Atkinson rang the Sunshine Coast Daily and got them to stop the presses. He needed Sean's photo and details of her disappearance in the next morning's edition, which he was able to do, and time was very precious at this stage. Now, the next day, Saturday the 28th of November, police continued their investigation. By this time, leads were coming in and mongrel Barry Watts was washing out the Kingswood at his Lowood residence while Valmay Beck went shopping. Now, when Beck arrived home later that afternoon, Watts excitedly yelled for her to come up and watch the telly. There was the report of Sean Kingy's disappearance on the news. By Sunday, there was still no sign of Sean and a murder room was set up in Noosa Head CIB. The party that Sean had looked forward to, that did go ahead without her. And a mannequin dressed as Sean was placed near Pinaroo Park in the hope it might jog someone's memory. The investigators were getting hundreds of calls from people who thought they'd seen Sean. A lot of the leads went nowhere, as usual, that's just part of the business, but one thing was showing up consistently, a white Holden Kingswood station wagon seen in and around the area that day. 
Later on Sunday, Elizabeth Young, who'd seen the crazy guy at Castaways Beach around the same time as Sean's last reported sighting, went into the cop shop to report what she saw. She told them about the dishevelled guy she saw on the beach that day and that her friend Bill Wallace had taken down the red joe plate of the car. Now, it was a Victorian red joe plate, LLE 429. Now, this was traced to a Valmay Beck. Now, she wasn't known to Queensland detectives, but when the Victorian coppers did a door knock on the address the car was registered to, they found a Roland Watts. Now, he was the adoptive father of mongrel Barry Watts. He told the cops how his mongrel son Barry and his floozy Valmay had come from Perth, Western Australia and had now gone to Queensland. Now, Beck's name didn't come up on the West Australian police computer. But when they asked to check Watts, then bingo, a known associate of Watts was a Valmay Forte and her description matched that of Beck's. That Sunday night, Watts cut his hair and dyed it dark brown from the bleached blonde it had been, and Beck bleached her burgundy-coloured hair blonde. With 17,000 Holden Kingswood station wagons in the area and 10,000 of them being white, police were pulling over motorists all day. Some were pulled over so often that they started to distribute cards that showed they'd already been cleared by police so they wouldn't be pulled over again. And there's somebody, one Victorian guy on holidays up there, was pulled over 24 times. Now, Watts was confident he wasn't going to be questioned, and so he and Beck sat tight in Lowood and kept a low profile. Then on the evening of December the 2nd, Neil Clark, a fruit picker at Covey's Road, Tinbiwa, noticed a bad odour as he walked home through the forest. Now, that night he saw on the telly a news item about Sean and thought to himself that maybe that bad smell was a body. The next morning he drove back there, got out of his car and just off the track he saw the body of a young girl next to a creek bed. He immediately called police and was connected to Detective Atkinson in the murder room. Atkinson rushed to the scene and soon after the area was roped off. He knew it was Sean. Her body lay on the bank of a sandy creek. She still had a school dress on and her pants were nearby. She still had her socks and shoes on. Her school bag was in the bush close by. Now, Atkinson had the heartbreaking task of informing Barry and Linda Kingy that their beautiful child was dead. Now, Sean had suffered not only a brutal rape, but she'd been strangled, her throat cut to the spine, and she had 12 stab wounds in her chest. As this hit the news, Watson Beck left Lowood and went south into New South Wales. On arriving at a place called the Entrance on the New South Wales Central Coast, and that's about a 10-hour drive south of Lowood, well, on arrival, they decided to send a money order to the real estate agent for the place in Lowood as they planned to go back there once everything had cooled down and they didn't want anyone coming around looking for unpaid rent. On December the 8th, the local copper had remembered seeing a white Kingswood with Victorian plates in the Lowood area at the time. The next day, police went to Lowood with photos of Watts and Beck. They showed them around town. Then by luck, 
a guy at the pub who was chatting to the barman mentioned he'd seen a white Kingswood near where he'd been working on telephone lines. He got in touch with the police and the next day he took them to this house. Now, neighbours there identified Beck and Watts from photos, adding that Watts would sit on the front veranda, perving at schoolgirls as they walked past. The police then went to the real estate that took care of this property and she was able to show them a rental agreement signed by Watts and Beck. She also told them that she'd received a money order from them for, for rent from them the other day and the money order had been sent from the entrance on the New South Wales South Coast. Now, police had a huge break here. They contacted New South Wales police to be on the lookout for a white Kingswood HQ station wagon with Victorian plates LLE 429. Then on the morning of Saturday the 12th of December, an undercover cop saw the car leaving a supermarket and he followed it to the Tienda Motel at 309A, the entrance road, the entrance. Now, it's it's now called the Reef Resort in case you're, you're Googling it. Now, Detective Atkinson and Magnuson flew to Sydney and drove up to the entrance. At 5pm, knowing that Watts was wanted on an armed robbery charge and that the car they'd driven from Perth to Melbourne and they'd traded it in on this white Kingswood, well, they had that forensically examined and it had been found that it had had a firearm concealed in it. So they weren't going to knock. Instead, they burst in using a spare key and Watts and Bex just gave themselves up peacefully. Now, at the entrance police station, Beck sat on Watts' lap while she held an ashtray for him. Now, when she was questioned later, she told police on the day of Sean's disappearance, they'd argued at the beach, she'd walked off and Watts had driven to Noosa Heads, he'd slept for a couple of hours, then returned and picked her up. On December the 14th, Watts and Beck were extradited to Noosa Heads. The cops had a warrant to bug their adjoining cells, which was a good idea, and bit by bit, Beck would tell police in her interviews just a little bit more here and there, and she ended up telling them that Watts had a fetish for schoolgirls. Eventually, that night, Beck fully broke and spilled the beans on what happened. She ended up giving a 29-page statement starting at 10.30pm at night and she finished at 7.33 the next morning. Now, she told them where they had disposed of the knife, the belt and masking tape that they used on Sean. Now, masking tape, that actually had Sean's hair stuck to it. Police found these straight away and Watts and Beck were now condemned. Now, when confronted with the statement... Watts told them that they still have to prove it. When Beck and Watts were back in their adjoining cells, Watts told Beck, You hung me good. Good on you. Top wife if you've betrayed me. We could have gotten away with it. Then she replied, No jury in the land would have found us innocent. You know it and I know it. Then he said back, No one saw us pick her up and throw her in the car. No one's seen her in the car. No one's seen us kill her. If you didn't confess, they didn't have a case. Beck then told him his best chance was for him to plead insanity. Now, later Watts would say, Am I really a madman? A psychopath? 
And Beck replied, Yeah, you're off your tap. Going out and raping somebody is one thing, but to kill in cold blood and not have any compassion at all, that worries me. It's been worrying me for weeks since it happened because you told me it wouldn't bother you, but I thought it would. Then Watts replied, I'd like to do it again. Beck said, Pardon? Watts said, I'd like to do it again. And Beck said, You see, and then you tell me you don't want to plead insanity. And Watts says, But you wanted to as well. And she says, What? Watts says, You wanted to as well. You wanted to do it again. Now, from what I gather, Beck confessed and tried to make out Watts was the main instigator that she just watched on. And the same goes for the comments she made in the cell. I think, and I think a lot of people think, she was trying to lessen her involvement. But even that 29-page statement that she gave, she told police that she'd even left out the bad parts that she did herself. And... (laughs) One little thing about this 29-page statement is that the story contained within it, it's not that she was happy to tell her future prison inmate fellows about the story, but places where she was safe. She was happy to tell psychiatrists and police, whatever, about this story. It was like she was reliving it and she got off on it. So this is why I say that she tried to lessen her involvement by making these comments in the cell because I'm sure she knew it was being bugged. So I won't go into detail too much on what they did to little Shan other than when they first saw her riding her bike that afternoon, they'd already dismissed several other girls as candidates, as Watts said he wanted a young, flat-chested girl, a virgin, that, and he would be her first and last. Now, all the girls they'd watched as they'd left school had someone with them. Now, Sean was on her bike alone. Beck had waved her down, asking Sean if she'd seen her lost poodle. When Sean stopped, Watts crept up behind her, put a rag over her mouth and pushed her in the back of the Holden Kingswood. The actual, the actual dog, which isn't a poodle, jumped out excited and Beck ended up having to get it back in the car. Now, Shard's bike fell over and then they were just gone. No one saw a thing. They then drove her to nearby Terwinton Forest. Now, Watts and Beck raped, tortured and killed Shan in about an hour-long attack before dragging her body to a creek bed. Watson Beck were charged on December the 15th, 1987. That was just the day before what would have been Sean's 13th birthday. Now, Beck pleaded guilty to abduction and rape, but not guilty to murder. And Watts pleaded not guilty on all charges. As it looked like Beck would testify against Watts, they had separate trials. In October of 1988, Beck's trial commenced. Now, she told how Sean had never cried, never shed a tear. A brave little girl. She never uttered a peep. She just did everything that he told her. Now, she would be found guilty of murder. She was sentenced to three years on the abduction charge, ten years for the rape charge, and life for murder to be served concurrently. In 1989, Watt's trial was held. Now, he did have Beck testify against him. 
Now, he got the same time on all three charges that Beck had received. On the 29th of October 1987, just weeks before Sham was raped and murdered, 31-year-old mother and teaching student Helen Mary Feeney went missing. She was a petite woman with light, sandy hair. Police believe Helen Feeney was taken from the Carlsadine College car park where her white Holden Gemini sedan was found abandoned. The driver's window smashed. Now, Helen was last seen alive at 6.30am on October the 29th at a caravan park at Tigham in Brisbane's north. She'd been studying to be a teacher at the Northbridge Brisbane College of Advanced Education at Carlsaldine. Now, Watts was tried in 1995 for Helen's murder. Helen was last seen alive one month before the murder of Kingy, as I said, and Beck and Watts were in the area at the time. Beck gave evidence that Watts had dumped Helen's body and burned it at a rubbish tip near Lowood, west of Brisbane, and he buried it at another location between Lowood and Wivenhoe Dam. Now, her body has never been found. Watts was acquitted of the murder, but police believe Beck knew exactly where Helen's body was buried. Of course, if you have any information concerning this case, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. Watts has been suspected of several unsolved interstate cases in- involving petite blonde virgins. Now, police don't believe they just started their crime spree with the attacks on the nurses and the department store worker in the month before killing Sean. Now, Beck died on the 27th of May 2008 in Townsville, Queensland. Her time in prison had been harsh and well-deserved. She'd been attacked many times. Once she was hit on the side of the head by a tin can inside the end of a sock. Now, fuck, just thinking about that hurts. The first time I'd ever heard about someone using a sock to inflict pain was when Leo Johnson put a bar of soap in the end of a sock to beat his wife Shelley with in Twin Peaks. Now, Beck had been sick, her weight had ballooned out from eating too much while working in the prison kitchen. She did go Christian. She got divorced from Watts and began a romantic prison relationship as much as you could, being in separate prisons with a convicted rapist. Now, Beck was placed in an induced coma in Townsville Hospital following heart surgery. Police hoped to get a deathbed confession from her about other crimes, but she died before they could. Now, there was this big hoo-ha on about providing medical services paid by the public for Beck and also her funeral expenses. In the end, an anonymous donator paid for her funeral. That was probably the Catholic Church, as she was a Christian. They tend to do these things. Now, there were some heated comments online about paying for her medical bills. I just thought I'd read this out. Now, in one article it was posted, This evil act should not have resulted in bed and breakfast for 20 years. She should have been dragged back to Chewington State Forest and shot. Now, the mother of an 18-year-old baby said, Prison is no punishment for this animal. She should have been stabbed in a similar fashion to what her young victim encountered. So when Professor Paul Wilson from Queensland's Bond University counted these, he said that Beck had certain rights. Now, he ended up getting cut down pretty fast. This next comment was, 
Dills like you claim vermin like Beck have rights. I challenge you to stand up in a Noosa hotel and repeat your waffle in the public bar. I could then preach how the guy who breaks your jaw has got rights and to see if you agree while sucking your dinner through a straw. Wow, that's real, real fucking Cambo rage. Now, Islanders, what an awful case and how the family must have felt. Linda and Barry Kingy, well, they actually paid for dinner for the detectives looking for Sean just as an act of appreciation. Now, that's just the sort of people they were. When you look at some of these cases, you just wonder how mongrel dogs like Watts and Beck can do what they do. It's easy to understand how people want them to go through the same pain and suffering. At least Beck died in prison and Watts, well, he's still rotting in there. He's given up trying to get parole. Well, that's it for this week. And like I said, what a shocking, shocking case. But before I go, a big shout out to all my patrons. Thank you for your support. It does keep the lights on. A special thanks to my new patrons, Daniel McDougall, Brenda Gallo, Jason Forex, Abercrombie is back and Helen Travora. Thanks so much. And if you would like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. You can now give in your local currency. I'm sure Canadian dollars, UK dollars, and uh, Australian dollars. So it works out a little bit better for you all. If you want to buy me a beer, you can shout me out on paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Links to merch, social media, and my YouTube channel. Just go and watch me on there. That's, that'd be nice. Is on my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also email me. A big shout out to the Seeing Red podcast, who got some cancel culture on their Facebook page this week because some numbnuts posted a funny meme that Zuckerberg didn't like. So if you've wondered where they've gone, you just have to search for their new group. So... I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom fuck a langa.